So this is uh, the power of community groups. And um, we just want to encourage you to plug in, find a group, find a group of people, stage of life, where you can grow spiritually closer to Jesus and God can just light a fire in your heart uh, to serve him and invest in your oikos and just grow spiritually. So I uh, want to encourage you to do that. We have an ice cream social after uh, church today. So we really want you to stay, hang out, and have a good time. We got tables, we got inflatables, we got ice cream and cornhole uh, boards out there. It's going to be a great day. But the real sweet treat today is you're going to hear from Pastor Steve Kern. And I want to invite him up to share God's word. And Steve, you can preach as long as you want, my friend, as long as you want. So I was asking my wife about the, about the hurricane last week because she's taking care of our um, grandchildren in Fullerton, and she showed me a picture of a drizzle of rain. So I said, I was really praying for you guys. I thought it was going to be a, a big disaster, although I know it was in the desert and everything. Uh, we have a lot of rain where we live, and I live in El Salvador in uh, Central America, and uh, the group that just came down to Costa Rica got to see that and everything. We had a great week. Uh, maybe I should back up and tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Steve Kern. I live in um, El Salvador in Central America. Uh, we've lived there for 38 years and uh, worked there as missionaries, starting churches and evangelism. And uh, we live in a very receptive part of the world uh, where people, I've always told people, I think there's more people there that want to hear about Jesus than people that want to go and tell them. They're just so wide open. And I know you've heard some testimonies about the group that just went to Costa Rica uh, last week and, and how people just respond. And that's a typical thing. Since we've lived there, we've seen over 400,000 professions of faith in Jesus Christ during that time and helped start 65 churches. And so it's just a movement of God. I don't say that to mention myself, just to say what God's doing in that part of the world. And a big part of what we do is involving groups that come down from the states. And so before I start, I want to invite you to consider coming next March to Mexico City or next August to one of the places we're going to go in, in Central America probably, or next October to El Salvador, where, where I live, and um, just to help to reach out. A lot of people ask me, well, what can I do, you know, during a week? And I always tell them, well, anytime you share the gospel with someone, you're doing something great. I mean, if you just are on a plane or you're just walking around the corner and you share it with someone, that's a great thing to do. And we live in a part of the world where people are very, very uh, open but they also like Americans. You know, you don't talk politics or any of that, but this, they like to hear English. So um, if you don't speak Spanish, sometimes that's an advantage because um, when the people hear English, they like to listen more attentively, and then they hear the translation with the interpreters that we have. We bring young people from our church um, in El Salvador to interpret. And so we have seen so many people um, not only reached by the groups that come down, but also as they go through our discipleship program, they grow, and then we send them out as missionaries. Um, two weeks from right now, I'll be preaching the anniversary of our mission in Bogota, Colombia, and the missionary there was led to the Lord when a group came down on one of these activities many years ago, of course. And so I just want you to pray about coming. Uh, pray about community groups. That was great. I wish I would have had a message on that. That is so important, um, finding friends in a church. But also making a mission trip, maybe with your community group. It's a, it's a great time that we have together um, when we reach out during that time. 
I wanted to share with you a little bit about what we're doing in our part of the world. People always expect a missionary to give a little bit of a report. And so um, we live in, in El Salvador, and I think I have a couple of maps up here just so you can get an idea uh, of, of where we live. Um, maybe the first map will come up of El Salvador. And so uh, there's El Salvador, and it's a little country. You can see that Guatemala is on one side, Honduras, and then you can't see Nicaragua, which is on the other side where it says Las Playitas y La Unión. And we've lived there for 38 years. And the first years that I lived there, about the first 20 years, we were focused on reaching the country and, and seeing people um, saved in that area. And El Salvador is a very receptive country because they went through the Civil War in the 1980s, as you remember. And or maybe a lot of you don't remember, I see a lot of young people, but you've probably heard from history that during the 80s, we went through a Civil War, um, a Civil War of 14 years, and had 70,000 people killed. But what was worse was after that was the proliferation of gangs. Um, when, when I moved in El Salvador five years ago, we were the number one murder capital of the world per capita. Now our president has put a lot of the gang members in jail, and it's a very safe place to come, so please come in October next year. So <laughs> anyway, but uh, it's, um, it's had a lot of problems. And when I moved, there was 10% evangelical. Evangelical means you either go to a um, Baptist, Bible, or Pentecostal-type church. And it was 10%. Now it's over 40%. And so we've just seen a tremendous move by God. But one of the things that we prayed about doing was trying to reach the rest of the world from El Salvador. Uh, we wanted to see, uh, one thing I've always prayed about is that we would send out more missionaries from Central America than comes out from the States. And I was in a mission conference seven years ago, and an expert on missions said there are now more missionaries coming out of Central America, a little tiny part of the world, than the United States. And I was excited about that because we want to reach the rest of the world from where we're at. And so God put on our heart a vision to reach um, people in the cities. And uh, well, I was talking to someone before this service started, talking about working out in the countryside. And I always tell people, I wish God would have called me to go to the countryside. I hate cities. I hate the traffic. I hate all the problems. And I, I love San Diego, but I hate the cities. Anyway, and so, um, but that's where God laid on my heart because we were preaching through the book of Acts and we were trying to start a missions movement from our church that would be similar to what Paul did. And one of the things that just jumped off the pages to me in the book of Acts was how Paul focused on cities. And every one of the, every one of the epistles is to a city. Or, of course, Galatia was a region where they had gone to the different cities. And I thought, you know, I'm in a, this is 1980, in the 1980s and 90s, I'm in a part of the world where most missionaries in the countryside, and we're not hitting the cities. And yet 65% of the people in our part of the world live in the cities. So that was the first thing that we decided that we're going to go to the cities, one million people or more. Then the second thing I noticed about Paul that was different than what I had seen as a missionary was he only went to receptive places. If people were not receptive to the gospel, he shook the dust off his feet. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that to the apostles when he sent them out in pairs. He says, if they're not receptive, move on. And one of the most amazing things in the book of Acts is that Paul did not stay in Athens. You remember that story in Acts 17? He's in Athens, which is one of the most important cities in the world, but they weren't receptive, so he moved on. He even moved on from reaching his own people. And um, he says, I am going to go to the Gentiles. And so what you find is a principle of cities, receptive people. And the third principle that I had not seen as a missionary was teamwork. Um, if you look in the Bible, everything's teamwork, always sending out teams. Uh, some people say Paul's team had 100 members on it. And um, the pastor I work with in El Salvador always says, God is a team. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teamwork is a big deal. 
And so when I um, was always observing missions, it was always to send one person, one person to suffer out in the countryside. And yet I didn't see it in the Bible. And I says, let's try something new where we're going to send out them. So we always send out two families where we're going to start a church. And so during that time, uh, the first place we went was to Managua, Nicaragua. And you'll see it on the map here. It's a city over a million people. And you can see it there. And then the next city we uh, sent somebody to was to Guatemala City, Guatemala. And you'll see that on the map. And then the next city we went to was San Jose, Costa Rica, who a group just came down to, to help us to reach out. You can see where that is. And then we went to Bogota, Colombia. Because part of our vision was what part of the world are we going to work in? And so we're at about between 12 and 14 degrees latitude. And I said, why don't we try to reach out, maybe from when I was a kid looking at globes so much when I was a kid, I always remember that there's the equator, then the Tropic of Cancer, which is 22 and a half degrees. So we're like halfway between, a lot of you are saying, what's the Tropic of Cancer? But it's, it's, it's a line that goes below the tip of Florida, includes most of Mexico, and then includes all of Central America. And then if you go down to the equator, it includes the northern part of South America. So if you can kind of visualize it from the equator in the Americas all the way to the Tropic of Cancer, you have over 300 million people, which is about what we have in the United States. Um, the most conservative estimates say that over 200 million of them are lost and they're receptive. And so that's the area we target. So we go down all the way to Colombia, Bogota, Colombia. Then the next place we went was to San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And you can see Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua in, in Central America. And then we started a church three years ago in a place that I always was praying we'd be able to do, which is Mexico City. And Mexico City has over 20 million people, and only 5% are evangelicals. It's one of the most lost places on the planet. And, and there's, there's a group of you coming in March. It's a place that's unbelievable. I, I got one aerial photo of the city. It's just this for, it just goes on forever and ever. And just multitudes of lost people that need people to say, Tell them about Jesus. You know, when Jesus saw the multitudes that didn't know the Lord, he said, pray for the, does anybody remember that? When he said the harvest is white, pray for the harvest, the workers. And so that's what I'm asking you to do, pray for the workers. And as some of you said about your community group testimony, that might be you, but pray for that. Pray for, for the workers. We need workers and people to go. And, and you know, a lot of people have asked me, why are people so receptive in that part of the world? And I've told them that I can't put my finger on it, but one of the reasons is we just go through crisis after crisis. When I moved to El Salvador, we were in the middle of a civil war. We've been through three major earthquakes, over seven, had a lot of destruction. We had the civil war, killing 70,000. We had way more killed during the gangs problem. And then we've gone through the diseases, um, obviously COVID, but we also had chikungunya and Zika and um, um, dengue and a lot of other diseases. And so people go from crisis to crisis in our part of the world. And, and, and one of the things I always hear people ask me, um, and this is a question you get a lot, is why? Why did this happen to me? This is one of the most common questions that people ask, is why? Why is this happening? Um, when I was 14 years old, I grew up in an atheist home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. When I was, and people ask you, where are you from? And I always say, from all over. My dad was in the, was in the military. And so we were living in... Plattsburgh, New York, which is near the Canadian border, and we were going to go to visit my grandparents in Seattle, and my mother died of a heart attack when she was 34 and I was 14 years old. And, and um, I remember crying out to, I didn't really know who God was. I'd never heard about God. I knew nothing about it. 
Um, I looked at creation and I said, somebody's made this, so, or nature, and, and that's what made me want to connect with whoever made it. But I remember going through that process of why, why, why. And this is something I've learned about the Bible. You can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that's a question you'll almost never get answered. Job is the greatest book on a person going through a crisis, 42 chapters, and it's basically a why book. It's just why, and his friends tell him why. You, you, you know the book of Job. It's just why. Why did this happen to me? Why did I lose my family? Why did I lose everything? Why, why, why? And finally, God says, where were you when I made everything? And, and so this is, let, let me give you an example, and, and this ties into what we're going to talk about this morning. When the disciples were walking with Jesus in John 9, you'll see it up here on the screen, they were walking with him. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Can I rephrase that? You can go back one verse. Let me rephrase that. Why? Why is he blind? It's a question we ask all the time. Why was I born in this family? Why did this happen to me? Why did this tragedy happen to me? And this is so common. And look at the answer of Jesus. They asked why. But look at what Jesus answered. Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that, that's future, the works of God should be manifest in him. And this is something that changed my life that I learned in my life. God never answers the question why. He answers the question, what for? Not why, what for? And, and, and I think the reason God answers the question, what for and not why, is because the why question puts you in the past. You just live in the past. I could spend every moment of my life asking, why did I lose my mom when I was 14 years old and have an alcoholic dad who didn't even want us? Why? But it doesn't do anything because you spend time in the past. You never get out of it. But then I ask, what for? What for? And there's the answer, right? The answer is to show forth the works of God. Let's say you walk out of here today and you fall down and you break your hip and you go to the doctor and you say to the doctor, why? Why did I break my hip? And the doctor says, well, the hip can take about 1,000 PSI of pressure. And when you fell down, the angle with which you fell down and the force with which you hit the, um, the, the cement produced 1,005 PSI, and that's why you broke your, your hip. Do you feel better now? <laughs> you don't feel better. You feel better when he tells you what's going to happen so you can get better, Right? And I think that God doesn't live in the past. The past isn't really real anyway. It's already happened. It's gone. You can't do anything about the past. He lives in the future. He's a future-focusing God. He takes the tragedies in our life, he takes the disasters in our life, and he turns them into something good to manifest his works. And I, and, and, and I thought about what's the difference between where we live in our part of the world and places that aren't as receptive to the gospel. And I think the big difference is that many people go through the same crises, but they don't connect with God. They don't connect with God during that time. If you don't connect with God, you're just going to talk to people the rest of your life saying, why did this happen? Why? You're going to do therapy. You're going to talk to different people, and you're going to try to find out in every philosophy or religion why, but you never get it solved. But once you connect with God and you understand the what for, you don't waste your tragedy. I always tell people that when we go through a tragedy, we don't use it to manifest God's works. We've wasted our tragedy. Heaven's going to be wonderful. We'll be eternally well off. But what can we do here with those tragedies? So what I want to talk about this morning, and that's what I've titled, How to Connect with God in the Midst of the Crisis. 
And I want to talk about a passage in Isaiah. And you might wonder, why did he pick Isaiah 6? Because many of you already know this passage. And many would say, well, this is a passage about missions. And, and really, if you read what it says, let's read what it says. Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, which each one had six wings, with with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged, purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Now I know a lot of you have already heard that passage um, when, you've, when you've studied the Bible or heard a message. But I want us to look at the context of what happened. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, we don't find Isaiah spending time with the Lord. I'm not saying that Isaiah was converted here, but Isaiah was not a strong, on-fire believer for God before chapter 6. And what had to happen so that Isaiah would connect with God was the death of Uzziah. Now, I know a lot of times when we see these king's names, we're, we're preaching a series in our church in El Salvador on the kings of Judah. And, and many of us get confused with all these names and wonder who they are. But let me just tell you a little background of Uzziah. Uzziah was a king for, over, for more than 50 years, and he was a great king. Think about your favorite president, if you have one, but in your lifetime, the best president you've known or the best leader. Imagine that person being in office for 50-something years. And imagine this, economic prosperity the whole time. This was the greatest time for Judah. So the same person for over 50 years and there's prosperity, and everything's going great, and he dies. That's why Isaiah went to the temple. He's going through a tragedy, and he needs to connect with God. And I really believe the principles that we see in this passage, we can apply to our lives no matter what the tragedy or the tragedy we've gone through in our life. There's a lot of people hurting in this world. And I think that when we connect with God in the midst of the crisis, then, then things are much better. So first principle, first principle we have to do, we need to contemplate his majesty. The first thing that Isaiah needed to do, and I believe this with all my heart, and I'm just going to open my heart to you, I believe this with all my heart. When you're going through a crisis, the most important thing you can do is see God high and lifted up. Because when you see him high and lifted up, he's above any problem that you have. He's bigger than any problem. And the problem is that many times when we're going through a crisis, our God is too small for our crisis. I've told a lot, heard a lot of people tell me when they're going through a tough time, well, Church just wasn't enough, or, or the Bible's not enough, or God's not enough. And I always tell a person that says that when they're a friend, and you know, where I, I feel like I can say it, I say, wow, you got a small God. There's nothing that comes against you that, number one, has not come across against Jesus Christ. Nothing. And there's nothing that is bigger than God. Nothing. Nothing that you're going through in your life. And so it says here in this passage, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So when we talk about contemplating his majesty, we need to, number one, contemplate his position, where, where he's at. 
He's high and lifted above. You, you know, one of the things that bothered me when I first started reading the Bible and, and I became a new Christian was how many times when somebody had to meet with someone with God in an important deal, he went up to a mountain. I said, why did he go up to a mountain? Why Mount Sinai? Uh, why the Mount of Transfiguration? Why not the valley? We know God's in the valley, right? And of course, he's up in the mountain. He's everywhere. But why, when God wanted to tell somebody something really important, he would take them up to a mountain? And I thought about this. And I think you can relate to that because, you know, you have mountains in California. But I realize this where I live. I live in between two volcanoes in San Salvador, El Salvador. And when you are in the city... Sometimes you feel like a rat in a maze, and everything looks so big, and you're overwhelmed. But when you go up to the mountain, and you look back down on the city, it's just a bunch of ants. It says in Isaiah 40 that God is above the circle of the earth, and he sees the people as grasshoppers. And I believe this. When you connect with God in the midst of the crisis, and you go to his position, your problems look like grasshoppers. But if you don't connect with God... They overwhelm you. You, you, you. you can't see past them. They're too big. There's no way to get past it. And it says that he saw his train. And, and I'm, I, I always, when I do it in English, you know, I preach three times every Sunday and every Friday, and everything's in Spanish. And with the, inter- the translation we have, it lines up more with King James and New King James. So I apologize to people that don't like King James. But this word train, train means the bottom part of the robes, the bottom part of the robes. So I'm going to ask you a question. If he could see, if he was looking at the robes or the bottom part of the robes of the Lord, what was, where was he? I think he's on his face. I think he's on his face. And we need to be on our face before God. And he sees him high and lifted up. And just a, a little side note, because we don't have time to look at it. In John 12, it says that he saw Jesus Christ. You see, every time you see God in the Old Testament, you never see the Father, right? He's, he's invisible. Who is the image of the invisible God? And so he saw Jesus. And what you need to see when you're in your crisis is Jesus. You can say, it says in in Psalm 16, one of my favorite passages, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. When you see the Lord in your situation, you can't be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. And, And, you know, I came from an atheist home, so... I was always made fun of because people would say, well, I only believe in what I can see. And I said to someone, is that really true? You only believe in what you can see? You ever seen a proton or a neutron or an electron? Has anybody ever seen one? Okay, good. No one raised their hand. There's no crazy people here. No one's ever seen that, ever. But are we sure they exist? We see them. I see the movement right now. I can see the atom, the nucleus, with the neutrons in the protons. Why can I see that? Because remember what faith is? It's the evidence of things not seen, right? Everyone in the world believes, has faith. Uh, believe me, I come from an atheist home, atheist scientific home. I used to be a chemical engineer before I was a missionary. And so I know that. Everyone has faith in something. Smart people have faith in the invisible God. Other people say, no, I believe in George Washington, Christopher Columbus, who they've never seen. I believe in the 4th of July to celebrate. They've never seen that. They believe in all that stuff, and that's great. I believe it's true, too. But I believe in God, and I believe I can see him because faith is the evidence of things not seen. And the reason Isaiah could go through this crisis is he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and you can see the same thing. 
He's there. He's there in every time. But, But notice another thing that he had to connect with when he contemplated the majesty. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. And, and two covered his face, and two covered his feet, and two was, he, he did fly. And he, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world, earth, is full of his glory. It's not just his position. You need to connect with the perfection of his majesty. He's a perfect God. And you're going to see the importance of that in, in, in just a couple of minutes. But, but when we're in a crisis, usually the crisis is not your fault, but a lot of times it is. You know, a person that smoked their whole life and gets lung cancer, they know that that's the reason they got it, right? And and so when we're in the middle of a crisis, it's important to connect with that he's above my problem, but with his perfection, his holiness, who he is. Because there might be something in my life I need to get right, which was the case of Isaiah. And so I believe that's why he could see the seraphim. Now, now who are the seraphim? I got a picture of someone drew one. I have no idea who the seraphim are. Um, I do know that they're not the cherubim because the cherubim were stationary. You remember how the throne of God is? There's four cherubim around the throne of God. Okay, so they're not cherubim. I know they're not angels because angels don't have wings. You know, I remember when I, was, when, when I became a Christian, one of my um, uh, working, um, uh, one of the people who worked at, at the same chemical plant I was at, another chemical engineer, he told me, heaven sounds boring. I don't want to become a Christian. You just sit up in clouds and play harps and look like an angel. I said, where did you come up with that? That's from the devil, man. If, if heaven is up in the clouds playing a harp and just being an angel, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's nowhere in the Bible. Heaven's eternal vacations. It's a perfect temperature, perfect food. It's to see the world. It's the most incredible experience there is. But a lot of people think that angels have wings and we become angels. That, that, that's not in the Bible. Angels always have the appearance of men in the Bible. But the seraphim and the cherubim do. And the seraphim have the wings, of course, so that they can fly around in, in, in the presence of God. I don't know who they are exactly. I do know that they serve God and they represent his holiness. And I want to say one more thing before we move on. Isn't it amazing that everyone in the presence of God does not say, love, love, love? Goodness, goodness, goodness. Grace, grace, grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Because those are all true, and I love that part about God. Everyone always falls in our face and says, holy, holy, holy. That is the number one thing that impacts people. And the word holy just means separate. And when we're connected with God, we're separated from all the bad stuff of this world. And one last thing, the power of his majesty. Look at what it says in verse 4. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. People say, well, where there's smoke, there's fire. And the fire of the Lord represents his power. It says in Revelation 15, it says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And so when we're in the midst of the crisis, take time to contemplate the majesty of God. You realize that he is much bigger and powerful than any crisis you're going through. First thing. Second thing's a total change. A total change. Because now that he's seen the perfection and the holiness of God, look at, what, look at what Isaiah says. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, something that always hits me about this woe is, If you read chapter 5 
Many of you know chapter 5, but you don't know it. Look at what chapter 5, verse 20 says. Just go back a few verses. You're just going back a few verses. And chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil that put darkness for light, and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. You've heard that before. Well, there's six woes in chapter 5. And it's interesting because Isaiah has still not connected with the Lord. And his woes are, woe, woe. I can just see his finger coming out. Woe, woe, woe. Then he goes to the presence of the Lord and he says, woe. You see what's happening here? You see, when he wasn't connected to the Lord, it's the problem of everyone else. Woe, woe, woe. And, and I know he was pointing out something that was true. My point is when he's in the presence of the Lord, what does he say? Woe. Interesting, it's the seventh woe. Woe unto me. I'm the problem. That's what we have to see because here's another tendency when I go through a crisis. I have a tendency to blame it on other people. I have a tendency to blame it on other circumstances. And I have to realize that many times it is, but I've got to connect with God where I see what part I have to do. So the second principle here is that we need to confess our misdeeds. Confess your misdeeds. How many of you remember the story of the Chilean miners that were trapped underground. Does anybody remember that story? Okay. Um, they actually, a guy wrote a book about it. I think I have a picture of the book on the next slide. And it was called The 33. Someone told me they, moved, they turned it into a movie. But I remember when this happened, living in El Salvador, and we followed this whole thing. And so there's a guy that wrote a book about this. Um, I don't see his name on there, but he wrote the book about this. And it's really interesting what he said happened. He says that when these 33 were trapped, and I don't, I don't know if you can even imagine what that was like, to be trapped way down in the depths of the earth with darkness. He says that there was one man everybody knew named Jose Enriquez that was a, was a believer in something. I'm not sure what his religion was, but he believed in, in Jesus. And they said that at first, of course, they were just miserable and, and it was horrible and everything. And the first thing they asked Jose to do was to pray for him. You ever been in a situation at work or somewhere where something bad happens? They say, would you pray? You're the religious one. It always cracks me up when people say that. It always cracks me up when I tell people I'm a missionary, how they change the way they're talking. You know, they've said about seven bad words, and they go, oh, wait a second, you know. And so when there's a, when there's a, a religious person present, people will say, well, would you pray? So that's what they did. So the Chilean miners are down there in the depths, and they say, would you pray? And he prayed a prayer that was really interesting. He asked God to forgive him for not being a better testimony to them. He asked God to forgive them when he had been selfish. And it started this chain reaction where every one of the miners started praying out to God that didn't necessarily have a relationship and confessing their sins. And then they had a little bit of food and they would eat together. Well, they repeated this every morning. Every morning they would get together, and you can read about this in the book, and they would pray, and, the, and Jose would lead this, this prayer and everything, and they were totally connected to God. And I don't know how many got saved because it's, it's, a, it's not a book, it's not a religious book. So it doesn't talk about that aspect of it. And, and so the, um, somebody commenting on the whole thing, not the author of this book, said that the greatest thing that happened to them was they connected with God during the tragedy. But when the best news happened, it was the worst thing that happened. I, I think I have a picture on the next one. I don't know if anyone remembers this picture, but this is on the news when they connected with them. And when they connected with them, guess what they quit doing? They quit meeting every morning. And that's the way it is with us. You know, a tragedy isn't necessarily your fault, but it's an opportunity to connect with God and see what's in your life. 
And, and that's what Isaiah was doing in this moment. I think I put up something here. I don't remember. Yeah, we were made in, somebody said this, and I don't know who it was. That's why I don't have the quote. We were made in God's image. Remember that. And seeing God is seeing ourselves. Remember that he's seeing God. Does everyone agree with me? Now, if God is the image that we were made in, he is the perfect example of us, right? And, and, and so when we see ourselves in light of God's glory, we see like Isaiah, how far we have fallen. We need to connect with God every day to see where we're at in our relationship. And that's why his reaction is to, to confess his sin. So continuing on, it says, Woe is me, for I'm undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, why did he see unclean lips? Well, we don't know if um, he had um, unclean lips because he used bad words. I don't know that. But I do know this, that what you say reveals what's in your heart. Remember that in, um, I think it's in Luke 6. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Was he using bad words? I don't know. Was he saying that because he wasn't praising the Lord? He wasn't talking about the Lord? I don't know. But I do know this, that your conversation reveals what's in your heart. It's like the guy that was the, the director of our ministry who was like my dad, my spiritual dad. One time I was at his house and he was hammering and he hit his thumb and a really bad word came out. And I was shocked and he looked at me and goes, Steve, I don't know where that word came from. And I says, yeah, I know where it came from, Luke 6, 45. Just giving him a hard time, of course. <laughs> you know, when we're in church, we can keep that stuff in, right? We can just say all the, the Bible terminology and all that kind of stuff. But when we're in the crisis, what's in the heart comes out. And I'm not saying anyone has a hard time saying bad words. It necessarily means you're a rotten person. I'm just saying it reveals what's in your heart. And, and so when we're in the tragedy, we're in the crisis, do we talk about Jesus or do we talk about our problems? It depends on how your heart is. It's, 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 it's revealing what's there. Now, now, look at this. You know, when I read these stories, I always try to put myself in the, in the shoes or the sandals of the person who's there. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of Isaiah. We, we have not been spending time hooked up with God. Now, Isaiah must have been from the priestly family. Do we agree with that? It does not say he was, but to go into the temple, he has to be from the priestly family. He has to be a son of Levi to be able to go in there. Well, he hasn't been doing that. He hasn't been connecting with God. So he finally connects with God, and he goes for God, and he sees this vision of Jesus in the Old Testament before he was born, high and lifted up, and he sees these creatures, these weird creatures that are talk, saying, holy, holy, holy. And look at what it says that one of these creatures does. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. What would you have done in that case? I would have run as fast as I could. I would have thought, oh, he's sending me to hell. I'm such a rotten dog. If I would have seen the holiness, the perfection of God raised up and see these seraphim creatures and they're talking about holiness and I see my sin in my own life, I would have been scared to death. But you know what God does here? That's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. He took a coal, the seraphim, from the altar. You know, when we usually talk about heaven, we talk about the throne of God. And I don't know what your image of God is, but many people picture a throne, right, with lightning bolts coming out. And they picture a God like Thor that just wants to squash you like a bug all the time. 
But I want to tell you the best news you can hear this morning. There's not only a throne, there's an altar. There's an altar in heaven. This is before Jesus came. So he could not have his sins forgiven based on Jesus' death on the cross. Do we agree with that? It's impossible. So, so how did people have their sins forgiven in the Old Testament? Let, let me give you an analogy I heard many years ago, and this will be a blessing for you to remember. Someone told me the story many years ago about a, uh, uh, um, an evangelist, an itinerary evangelist, who made a cruise, one of those cruise ships, um, uh, you know, where you go to the other parts of the, of the world. In, in a, I've never done it, but you go in a big boat, and they provide everything for you and entertainment and all that and food. So he went on one of these cruise ships, and the first day the captain heard about him. And the captain says, I know who you are. Would you be willing to speak in the chapel tonight? And he says, sure, I didn't even know you had a chapel. I guess these ships are so big, they're like cities. And so he, he spoke in the chapel the first night, but it's the old days. In the old days, for, for any of their new Christians, everybody wore a suit and ties. And, and he had a cream-colored suit. He was an evangelist. They used to wear very colorful people. So he's got, a, he's got a cream-colored suit on, and the first night he preaches, and they want him to come back every night. Well, that night he's eating dinner, and he spills some kind of red sauce all over his, his jacket. Well, you might say, well, no big deal, you know. Just show up the next day in jeans and a T-shirt. They didn't do that in those days. That was, that was bad news. So he says to his wife, what am I going to do? We can't get another suit coat. She says, I know what I'll do. So she had some talcum powder. And what she did is, right before he was going to preach the next night, she put talcum powder over the stain. Can you picture a cream-colored suit coat? And it covered it. And no one could tell. And he preached all night. But as the day went on, what happened to that, that powder? It fell off. So what did his wife do the next night? She covered it again, right? Every night, cover it, and it would fall off. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Old Testament, you sin. There's no Jesus that's died on the cross. So what you had is this... These rituals, these, these sacrifices, and you've studied that before, where you would bring a lamb that would represent your sin, and you would go through all these rituals, but you never cleansed the sin. What did you do? You covered it. You were like the evangelist's wife, just covering the sin every day. You would cover it, you would cover it through the altar. Now, when Jesus came, he cleaned it once and for all. You don't got to go back. Once. You know, that's the book of Hebrews. Once and for all. Once and for all. Well, at this point, they're in the altar time. And so here's Isaiah. He's standing before the holy God. He's going to crush me like a bug. I'm a rotten dog. But then he sees the altar. You see what the altar is? It screams out grace. It's the grace of God. You see, the throne of God is a throne of mercy, it says in Hebrews. It's a throne of grace. And so when he comes before God, he connects with him through his grace. He takes the coal. He had to have taken the coal, most likely, from the bronze altar where the sacrifices were done. And remember that everything you read in the Old Testament in, in um, Exodus and Leviticus is a copy of the true tabernacle and temple that's up there. And so he covers his sin every day. So he, he sees us coming and he touches his mouth. And it's the grace of God because it says in verse 7, he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. One more thing. Iniquity refers to doing bad things. Sin refers to not doing good things. He's covering it all. If you study it, and you've heard this before, sin means missing the mark. When they used to shoot an arrow, if they didn't hit the bullseyes, they sinned. That's what sin means. So, so sin refers to not doing the right thing. 
But iniquity is when you do the bad thing. He covered it all. This is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross. He's seeing a picture that one would come and be our sacrifice on the altar to cover it once and for all. And that's why confession of those misdeeds helped him. And I think I put one more thing up here. In the midst of the crisis, take time to get right with God so that you can convert your crisis into an opportunity. Somebody says a crisis is just an opportunity disguised. And I agree with that. I've seen people go through horrible things in their lives. And I've seen the same person, a different person go through the same situation, but they didn't end up the same. Because one saw it as a crisis, the other saw it as an opportunity. And that's what he does here. But the last part's the best part. Third point. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear you indeed but understand not, and see you indeed but perceive not. Last point. Right here, Isaiah understands why he went through the crisis. It's to comply with God's mission. The the reason that we go through tragedies, I don't know why. I don't know why. You know, when when, when you're a pastor and and you're in a part of the world that's just like here, just a lot of suffering, you you hear stories and you just go, "I, I just cannot understand why. This is such a great person. They pray all the time. They go to church. They're great at opportunity. Why did this happen to them? Why did this happen to their family? I don't know, but I know what for. And I've seen people do incredible things because they took the tragedy and they used it to comply with God's mission. Every time you go through a tragedy and you don't use it to fulfill God's mission, you've wasted a tragedy. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to look back. Why didn't I take advantage of that tragedy? All he did was just ask why and just go through it in, in, in the whole time instead of converting it into a blessing at that time. Now, now notice the importance of this mission. It says, I think I put that up there, the importance of the mission. It says in, it says in verse um, 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Now isn't this weird? And who will go for us? Why does it say who will go for, for me? Why does it say who will go for us? Well, there's, a, there's different options. One option is, who will go for me and the seraphims? I don't buy that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think the seraphims send out people on mission. I think it's the same as in Genesis when it says, the Lord said, singular, let us make, God in, let us make man in our image. I think what God's saying here is, okay, Trinity, who, who are we going to send? Because when you share the gospel with people, you, you, you share the gospel to glorify Jesus, but it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and God has to use you. The whole Trinity works together when you're sharing the gospel. It's such an important mission. It is the mission. It's the thing we have to do while we're here on earth. And so he says, who will I send? Who, who will I send to go? And, and then he says, here am I, send me. Now, now listen to what this mission is. And, and let me just say one more thing about the mission. If you don't go... Who will go? I've heard people say this a lot, especially in the last years. It doesn't matter if I go, God's going to save who will save, and he won't save who he won't save. I don't know. That's not what Romans says. It says in Romans 10, is that up there? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? In Mexico City, El Salvador, or wherever you might go. How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? That was me. There's people in San Diego 
San Diego and Seattle are always battling to be the number one unchurched city in the United States. you got people who have never heard about Jesus. Oh, I don't believe that. I was one of them. I lived in Plattsburgh, New York. I'd never heard about Jesus. And, and, and so how should they believe in him if they've not heard? How are your workmates, how are your neighbors going to hear if they've never heard? Oh, well, God will save them anyway. That's not what it says. Let's, let's go by what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? And how should they hear without a preacher? Well, I'm not a preacher because I'm not up there standing and talking. That's not what a preacher is. A preacher is a believer in Christ who shares the message with another person. That's preaching. And he said, how should they preach except they be sent? And it's written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. God's plan, A, B, and C, is you. You have been strategically placed where you're at right now, and everything that's happened in your life has happened as a culmination for doing the greatest thing you can do. Convert the crisis into a blessing by sharing with other people. Your story's powerful for other people. There's people suffering in this world, and they don't know Jesus. They're suffering for nothing. The only thing worse than going through a tragedy is go through a tragedy in life and end up in hell. That's the only thing worse that can happen. And so God allows us to be in strategic positions to share with other people. But, but notice the weirdness. I put the idiosyncrasy of this mission. It says, and he said, go and tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not. And see you indeed, but perceive not. And then it gets worse. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. And then Isaiah says, Lord, how long? This is what I would have said. I've gone through this whole process where I was standing before God. I'm on my, I'm on my knees or my face, and I'm seeing the Lord. And the seraphim comes and touches my lips. And I said, here I am, Lord, send me. And God says, Go preach and make people harder. Thanks a lot. That's what I would have said. Thanks a lot. I've gone through this whole thing, and you're giving me a ministry of failure? You're going to put me in a country like the United States where people aren't receptive, and you want me to preach, and people are going to get harder to the message? Yep, that's what's going to happen. Now, this, this ends up good, but that's what's going to happen. Now, 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 why does the Bible say that when we preach the gospel, sometimes people get harder? In Deuteronomy, there's a good explanation for this. Deuteronomy 28 says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Okay, this is Israel. This is a list of curses. But there's a great principle in this. He's saying that all these bad things will happen in your house, in the countryside, and everything that happens in your life. But within all of those curses, look at what it says here. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one will save you. The reason the Israelites were hardened at this moment was because they were disobedient to God. The only way you can prove that you love God is by obeying him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my, keep my commandments. That's why when God wanted to try out Adam and Eve... He doesn't know if Adam and Eve really love him. He loves them unconditionally. How can he know if he, they love him? By giving them a simple task to see if they'll obey. You can eat from all the fruit of all the trees, but not that one. If they would have obeyed, it's because they loved him. But they disobeyed because they loved the world more than him. When we don't obey God, our heart becomes harder. I'll, I'll give you an illustration. 
If we go out in the sun today and we put a crayon on the cement, I remember doing that when I was a kid. I was always getting in trouble. What happens to the crayon? Okay, if we put a piece of clay in the sun, what happens? It gets harder. Well, the sun hasn't changed. What changed? The material, right? God doesn't change. But when your heart is disobedient, you know what happens every time you hear the gospel? You may be here right now, and you've never accepted Christ. And every time you hear the gospel and say no, you know what happens? It's like the clay. It gets harder and harder. But you may say, no, I want to know God. I love God. I want to obey him. Then your heart becomes softer and softer and softer. And so God says, many times when we share the gospel, people get harder and harder. A lot of people have given up on sharing the gospel here in San Diego because people are hard. But God says it doesn't matter. It does not matter. You keep preaching the gospel. You, you, you keep sharing with people. And he asked the question, how long? How long? Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, and this is the key to the whole message, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land, and yet it shall be a tenth. And it shall return and shall be eaten as a tail tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. And when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Let me explain what this says to finish it up. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Lord, send me. Okay, Isaiah, you're going to preach to these people. And every time you preach, they're going to get harder and they're going to get harder and they're going to get harder. As a matter of fact, do you know what the most quoted passages in the New Testament a lot of people don't know this. The most quoted passage in the New Testament, this. This is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Look at what it says in Matthew. Therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. And then the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. It's in every gospel. It's in the book of Romans. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage. And I think that Jesus quoted that to the disciples to say, I'm sending you out to preach the gospel. But what if they're not receptive? It doesn't matter. You're to obey. That's how you show you love me. And, 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 and so what happens? As you preach the gospel more and more, what happens to the clay if the sun continues to hit it? It gets harder, harder, and what happens eventually? It breaks. Woo! That's the good part. That's the good part. It, it breaks. When I became a Christian, you can imagine how my dad responded. My dad told me the first time I shared the gospel, don't ever mention the name of Jesus or religion in my house again. And every time I would come back on a, from El Salvador to visit him, he didn't want to hear anything I was doing. To me, to him, I was a loser. I gave up a chemical engineering job. I went to a country that was in the middle of war. It was, to him, I was just a stupid person every time I would see him. But I kept praying for him. And God showed me this passage. God showed me this passage. And I says, I've been praying for the wrong thing. I've been praying for the wrong thing. I says, God, break my dad. Break my dad. And you might say, that's a rotten prayer. No, it's not. Because I realize that's the way he'll get saved. It's got to go through that process. Many people are so hard of the gospel, they'll never get saved unless they're broken. And then they get broken. Whew, and everything changes. So I started praying for my dad. And I would pray over and over. And then I found out my dad had emphysema because he smoked. And um, he still was hard as a rock. Then, then he had to get a quintuple bypass. 
And I remember the guy that was the director of our ministry sharing the gospel with him and saying, Ward, were you worried you would die? No, didn't even think about it. Just a hard person. And so then he got diabetes because he was a very heavy drinker. He wouldn't quit drinking. So he just destroyed his whole liver. But the worst is he had to go on dialysis. And he was broken. You know, my last name's German, so German descendants, military, not a good comp- com- it's not a good combination if you love love and affection. <laughs> Let's just say in my family. This is a hard man, but he changed because he was broken. And I saw it happen. He, he had to be taken to dialysis by my stepmother all the time. And I remember coming to see my dad one time, and I saw a, a Steve Green. Does anyone remember Steve Green? He, he was a singer many years ago cassette on the table in my house. What is this? This will be like going into a satanic church and seeing a hymnal, a Christian hymnal. I thought it was going to burn up. I really did. I thought that cassette's just going to burn up on the table. What's it doing in my house, you know? And so I, my dad took me someplace, and I started sharing the gospel. And I shared it really fast. I have a problem when I'm nervous. I talk real fast. Maybe I've talked too fast this morning. I apologize. But I started sharing the gospel. You know, Romans 3.23 says that we're all sinners. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, and I'm just going on and on. And my dad didn't shut me down. And I says, Dad, would you like to trust Christ? And he says, pray for me. Whew, I lost it. I lost it. This man's so hard. He's so against the gospel. He hates it. He can't be saved. Don't pray to him. God's already destined to hell. I don't believe any of that stuff. I believe what the Bible says. You, you, you continue to share that message with people because they will eventually break. You don't break them, you. You love them and you talk to them. And so my dad died. I called him December 17th, 1999. And I called my dad and I says, Dad, what's been going on? You know, have you made that decision for Christ? He says, keep praying for me. One and a half months later, January 30th of 2000, I receive a phone call. No, I got an email. I have a weird family. No one ever talks, so I got an email. The email says, you might want to call your stepmom because your dad's not doing good. So I call my stepmom, and I say, what's going on with my dad? You need to call the hospital. So I call the hospital, and I says, my name is Steve Kern. My dad is here in the hospital. And they says, oh, yeah, they said you were going to probably be calling. I says, well, how do they know I was going to call them when they just sent me an email? Anyway, so I call this lady, and I says, I heard my dad's not doing very good. What's the situation? Well, I can't tell you on the phone because of all the rules. He was up in Sacramento. I can't tell you because of all the, the rules and everything. And I said, well, let me ask you a hypothetical question. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? She says, get on a plane. Got on the plane from El Salvador. I go to the hospital. My stepmother's waiting for me. She says, you've got to talk to your dad. You've got to talk to your dad. And so I walk into the room. And my dad's laying there. He's on an intubated, so he's in and out of consciousness. I say, Dad, and he wakes up. You know, I've known him so many years, I can read his eyes. And I know what he was saying. What the, are you doing here? I know that's what he said because he talked that way to me all the time. Never a nice word. And I go, well, Dad, the reason I'm here, I'm glad you, had, glad you asked that question, although it's with his eyes. I said, because I want to tell you about Jesus and you need to receive Jesus. You know how important it is. And he goes like this. And he went to sleep. Never woke up. So a funeral comes along, and I'm going to preach the funeral. This is my funeral. I told you we came from an atheist home. My sister became a Mormon right when we moved to, Cal- to Sacramento. My dad w- was at Sacramento, and I've been all over like you guys. And so 
um, maybe some of the same places. I was born in Riverside. So anyway, so I went to Sacramento and um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm visiting them and everything. And so I'm thinking, what am I going to do for this funeral? Oh, my stepmother got saved that day. She got saved that night. And she says, well, you've got to, Ward, that's my dad's name, didn't want, to, said, I don't want to have a funeral. Just have me cremated. But if the kids want a funeral, they can do it. So I did it. So I knew who was coming to my funeral. Mormons and atheists. That was my group. I'm, I'm being serious. Because remember, I got saved and I didn't stay there. I went off, you know, went off to college, UC Davis. Then I became a chemical engineering and went to, um, uh, moved to Louisiana. And so I thought, what am I going to preach on? So I preached on John 14, 6. And I shared this testimony to the people present. I said, I want everyone here to know, I don't know if my dad got saved. But let me tell you, and he wanted to play Amazing Grace with the Scottish bagpipes because he was military. I thought, that's a miracle. He wanted to play Amazing Grace. He told her that before he passed away. So they played Amazing Grace. I told the story of Amazing Grace and the guy who wrote the story. And I said, my dad was a lot like him. And I says, I don't know if my dad got saved, but I'd like to think so. So we finished the whole thing. We go in the back here for the 21-gun salute. They finish. A lady walks up to me, and she says, I'm kind of concerned about what you said. I go, oh, no, she's going to chew me out. She says, I'm a social worker with the state of California. Oh, this is worse. <laughs> Nothing against if you're a state worker. I'm just kidding. And so, uh, or I, I mean, if you're a social worker. And so she comes up and says, my name is Mary Helen. I thought, Mary Helen? I remember that name. My dad talked about a Mary Helen. She says, I'm real concerned that you said you don't know if your dad's a Christian. I saw your dad December 24th. Remember when I called? December 17th. December 24th. And I asked him, I says, Ward, have you accepted Christ yet? And he said, you know, Mary Helen, I've been a very hard person, but I now believe in Jesus Christ. I lost it. I don't cry. I was taught when I was growing up, real men don't cry. If I watch a real sad movie... I'm going like this the whole time. <laughs> Can't cry, man. Real men don't cry. Of course, real men do cry. I'm, I'm just being facetious. And so I lost it right there. And I went up to my stepmom. Did you hear Mary Helen tell her what happened? And my, my stepmom's excited. We go to the reception at the house with the atheists and the Mormons. And my stepmother just fired up. Praise the Lord. Dad got saved. Your dad got saved and all this kind of stuff. Don't give up. That's my message. Do not give up. Because God says to you, just like he said to Isaiah, preach. And you know what? They're going to get hard first. And harder. And harder. And then one day, they break. And if you have a loved one that's very hard, pray that God will break them. Not because you want something horrible for them. But would you rather have your loved one have a wonderful life and go to hell or be broken and end up in heaven? That's the question. I don't know why whatever has happened to you has happened to you in your life. I don't know why. I didn't come here to give you some cute answer. But I know what for. I know what for. Don't waste the rest of your time on this earth living in the past. Live for the future. God can take your horrible circumstances and change the life of other people. And I've seen that happen where we're at. I think that's what God wants to do with us. Let's pray.